Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's Keep Calm and Cope CoronaCast. We're starting to get a little stir crazy, I'm sure. Um, my friends are going to all be here today. Marcy Shunk is running a little late. Lindsay Griffiths is on the show. Katie Barnhart is here as well. So welcome, ladies. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, today we're going to talk about a very serious topic, but you know me, I'm always kind of loopy at this hour of the morning in California. Um, haven't even had my first cup of coffee yet. Lindsay and I were just chatting folks about morning coffee and she said, wait, I have to have my coffee. And then she cracked open a can. I said, you drink coffee <laughs> from a can? And she said, yeah. So tell us about your coffee before we get going on our topic. Yeah. So this is my, my hot take for everyone. I drink a Starbucks double shot espresso that comes in a six and a half ounce can. Um, it's espresso and cream. Uh, I drink the light version, which is a little bit less sugar. Um, wow. They have, they have a full sugar version too, which is also good. But um, yeah, Starbucks does. Star, I'm a, I'm a big Starbucks girl. So anybody. I that, am too. We're loyal. Um, so this, yeah. this podcast now brought to you by Lowe's. Starbucks, and, yes. and, and the uh, Asiago cheese manufacturers of America. Yeah, that's right. Let's just say Italy. <laughs> All of Italy. <laughs> Time for a free trip to Italy. Um, we plug if they'll the let us in. Exactly. Nobody will let us in. Are you watching this testimony? Oh, my God. What Y'all, I'm trying not to go political, but I'm really struggling. I mean, the IQ of some of these Republicans questioning Dr. Fauci. The man is an MD and a PhD. WTF, right? <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've, already, I've already clicked unfollow on a Facebook post this morning. Just a guy really? who's like, wake yep. up, sheeple. Yeah. If you want to hear politicized fake news, listen to these faux doctors. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. IQ in the single digits. Um, so I have never, you know, I'm very hardcore um the unfollow button that's so kind I've, i'm i'm very familiar with block um but not so much with the unfollow button maybe i should try to you know unfollow rather than defriend both are good <laughs> i'm 53 i think i've earned the right to block and defriend and just walk away um i always know when, to, know when to hold them know when, know to, when hold. to hold them yeah. that's right that's true all right well that is not quite exactly what we're talking about today, but many would politicize the issue that we're talking about today, even though it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with human rights. Um, so I picked this topic because, well, to be honest, I'm always honest, brutally honest, and probably shouldn't be on record as being so honest, but I picked this topic because last night at what, 11, my time, <laughs> Lindsay reminded me that today's my day for the show. And I was like, oh my, okay. Well, I had given a webinar yesterday on addressing the isms. So that's why you ladies will be discussing the isms today. And when I say isms, you know, my webinar talks about uh, sexism and racism. Those are the two main topics. But let's not forget things like um, the isms, whatever we would call it, against people with disabilities, and you know what I call sizeism, the ism against people who are not within the Navy's guidelines for what you should weigh <laughs> at my age as a female. I'm not talking about me or anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> 
but today's topic, we're going to talk about racism. That's the ism we've decided to focus on, or at least I did last night at 1102. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this. I'm very committed to equity. You ladies know, uh, we talked about Ikigai once and I said, you know, Marcy actually said, Susan, I think you found your Ikigai in what you do for a living. And that is fight for equity in the workplace and equality in the world. And she's absolutely right. I have found my purpose in life, my passion for waking up every day, the thing I can get paid for, that also the th it's a thing the world needs. So let's talk about the world's need today. Why are you ladies committed to equity? <laughs> I think, you know, it's the same reason. So um, for me, it, Susan, as you said before, it's a, it's a human rights issue. It's the right thing to do. Um, I think for people listening, I know, I've, I've delved a lot into this issue over the last several years, and um, I've learned that some people need to hear the business case on it, and there is a very important business case for diversity. And as you said, it's not just in terms of racial diversity, but all kinds of diversity. And when you have diversity, your business grows exponentially. And I, I keep thinking about the ideas and the innovations that we've missed out on because we've had only sort of one type of thought that's been right. around for so long. So I call um, them owls, old white leaders. Yeah. In yeah. law firms, they're old white lawyers. So yes. owl, <laughs> hoot hoo, the owl thinks he's wise, but we don't all speak the language of the owl. So it's time to open up the dialogue of, you know, and invite many voices to the table and, and actually give them decision-making power, not even give them, they already are, you know, they deserve that, have earned it. We don't need to give people who aren't old white men a voice. We need to allow them to speak it and to be heard. Right. Just step so, aside. Step aside, Clyde. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, you may be starting to think more about your own role and the ability to impact others, or you might be like, I am really much farther down along your journey. I've been doing this work for years. In fact, I was quite an outspoken little advocate uh, for LGBTQ rights, even long, long ago before it was, um, you know, before DOMA was overturned and so forth. But let me ask you, Katie. Mm -hmm. What do you think your role is? Or, or, you know, it may not be as in-depth or, or it may be totally different than ours, or maybe you're not there yet. What's your role in, uh, in this commitment to equity? Um, you know, to me, it's really thinking about the four young women that I am raising. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, Powerful. you know, I we've talked about it before, but, you know, there's there are things you can tell kids that they absorb, but they are watching you more than anything. Right. And so, you know, one, of course, I, I believe in equity very strongly personally, but also, you know, for me to cultivate good humans, I have to walk the walk. That's right. That's right. And I, I want, and I want them to grow up in a better world. I want other babies who don't look like them to grow up in a better world. Yeah. Um, but that means, Again, you know, you have to show up. You know, Kate, well, this is going to sound weird, but um, I wish you had been my mom. <laughs> you're a aw, great, you're a great example, for, especially for a daughter. I mean, I didn't have that. So, um, 
you know, I try to be a good example for my son and he certainly will treat women well and, you know, with the respect and equity they deserve. But um, your daughters are in a really great place seeing what a rock star mom and businesswoman and wife you are. Um, I think that's awesome. Thank, Thank you very much. Put the gas in my tank for the next six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of um, the isms, let's focus, if y'all don't mind. You, you know my business has started out with, you know, fighting for women, um, which included women of color. Um, but it also included lesbians and, and, you know, then I started thinking, let me study more about the differences um, in the, the plight of the black people versus other minorities, right? So women and other minorities is what we usually say, but I think we need to really start to point out the black people, right? Mm -hmm. the, their plight, their story, their journey. Um, and this whole Black Lives Matter things, it, it's important that you say black lives matter, not just all lives matter. Um, and yeah. I think I, I used this before, but if my house in my neighborhood is on fire and my neighbor calls the fire department and they proceed to my neighborhood and they put all their hoses on all the houses, how is that helping me? It's my house that's on fire. So that's what it means to be about Black Lives Matter. That's the, the group of people that have been oppressed, disenfranchised, treated poorly, horrifically. I don't even, I get tearful when I think about it. But that's the group we need to focus all our attention on and, and not ask them to solve this problem. So in doing so, in doing my part, I held a webinar yesterday called Addressing the Isms and three quarters of the webinar was about racism. So I think today maybe we should explore how to speak and engage constructively about race so that we can all grow together. Um, I know personally as a person committed to racial equity um, I'm trying to help people understand ourselves, our races, what race really is, and hint, hint, is not, mm. and the experiences of others in a more nuanced and an interactive way. What about you? Why are you here? What can you say, you know, about race, Lindsay? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. So, um, I think, I mean, you have some great notes here that I know you're going to share with our, our listeners. So um, things like, you know, I care about how society shapes my race and how my race sh shapes my experience in society. And so I think as I say that, I it's one of those things where historically we as white women don't talk about being white. And I think that's something that is important for me to say and that I, as I've looked and, and delved into race more as a social construct, and to be clear, it is a social construct. It's not yeah. based in DNA. It's not based in anything scientific. Um, it's, it's important to note that we generally talk about race as something that happens to people of color. And it's, while yes, race does happen to people of color, it's something that that happens to white people too, that, that I need to own as somebody who is white because my race impacts other people. And because we've decided, white people have decided that it's the norm, that has ramifications. So, you know, looking into what that does and what that means, and then helping to dismantle 
both my what happens in my individual life but also the systemic racism that exists and how that it feels like a really big job and it is a really big job but it doesn't mean we don't take the steps to do it it is really you know my responsibility as a white person and then also calling out other people on an individual basis to ensure that um you know that that happens uh, but you know as, as i think you you alluded to before too the importance of of making space for black people and other people of color to um to have their own agent which as you said they have their own agency but to make sure that they their voices are heard they have their own voices i don't need to give them a voice they have it already but i need to make sure that other people are especially other white people are listening and you yeah, know, a lot of them are, exactly exactly so to say you know it's like you see with the protests where you need white people to step in front of black people and other people of color to make sure that they're better protected and you need white people to make sure that there are people of color on boards on in leadership positions on panels for speaking and and those types of things because that hasn't historically happened powerful 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 and lindsay you and i read all the same amazing books and i think you live it you're very courageous it's not just talk so we talk about you know diversity is something we know but inclusivity is something we do and i think that the women on this podcast are committed to close closing that knowing doing gap so katie let me ask you um when were you first aware of your race and and i'm, I'm going to say there's no right answer about this even if you say what i think you might um i think no i wrong, might surprise no i think i answer. i think i might surprise you oh um, good so i grew up in the school district that was the brown versus board of education school district wow wow my high school was the high school that the plaintiff would have attended. Wow. So wow. Um, race was, my, my high school experience was very informed by race. Um, our high school, the boundaries for our high school were basically drawn so that we would have this really cool <laughs> microcosm um, where, you know, it was pretty much, 40% white kids, 40% black kids, 20% um, other, um, which just made diversity second nature. I mean, it's just something- Yeah, part of life. Used to that, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I remember, so for homecoming queen and for, um, it's called like king and queen of court. It's like the basketball equivalent of homecoming queen. Um, there were quotas where there were five candidates for homecoming king and homecoming queen and they were going to be two black candidates, two white candidates, and one candidate of others, so Hispanic, et cetera. And I remember, you know, being a teenager and, you know, you kind of are hoping maybe you'll be homecoming queen <laughs> and <then> thinking <laughs> like, oh, you know, um, you know, they should just take the five biggest vote getters or, you know, it should be based right. on popularity or something like that. But now that I look back at it, what a cool thing they did because yeah. everyone in that school saw a homecoming candidate who looked like them. That's awesome. It, it wasn't just the same group of popular kids. It wasn't, you know, just one group's definition of who the popular kids were. 
Oh my um, God, I am so delighted by this answer. Yes, yeah. you're right. I'm surprised. And, and so, you know, some of it I haven't fully appreciated until I've been away from it. But, you know, even things like who the cheerleaders were, there was yeah. very careful consideration. Um, and, you know, I think when you're in it, when you're a teenager, sometimes it's, you know, this should just be merit or this should just be, you know, again, the top five vote getters. You don't really understand it. But now that I look yeah. back on it, um, how powerful that was just that I had the benefit of growing up in this environment built for representation. And now I see, you know, my stepdaughters, um, Ava and Kate, they are going to go to a high school that is like 99.4% white. Um, and, you know, that they have these great souls and then they go to, you know, protests here and, and they're, they have the hearts of revolutionaries, but they're not, it's one thing to care about black people. It's another thing to know black people. <laughs> and, That's right. And, to and do they just, and they just, they won't have that context. But um, Katie, they have you and telling us this story, you should tell them that story as well. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, for the past, I've, I've done it for five years. There's a program here called Lead to Read where grownups go into an elementary school in the inner city and you just spend your lunch hour once a week reading with a kid. That's um, awesome. And, you know, these schools are, you know, largely, you know, below the poverty line, um, predominantly African-American and seeing the contrast in terms of the resources and the living conditions that. of these kids versus my kids' elementary school. Um, I wish that, you know, every bratty email I get from the PTA of, you know, let's raise money to buy a third coding robot for our kids. Yeah. I, I just wish that I could take them to this classroom where, you know, one year we said, hey, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Greiner, how could we, you know, bring in treats for the holiday? And, you yeah. know, she said, you know, cookies would be nice, but these kids don't have gloves. Yeah. Oh, that um, makes me sad. Oh, my yeah. And, and so just this, it's kind of a, I think the suburban white ladies get in this yeah. bubble of, you know, my kid's school is going to be great. Well, you know, maybe our kids go to an A plus school and there's a D minus school on the other side of the state line for no reason other than property taxes and systemic racism. But Headlining. maybe if, right, if, if we agreed to maybe make our school a, a B school so that they could be a C school, there's the systemic racism behind the funding of education is a whole yeah. other topic, but, um, <laughs> Oh We're yeah, that's a big one. Of that. We're going to touch so, on that. So for me, yeah, both how I grew up in, in a Brown versus Board of Education model school and what I see now as a parent, um, really the, the, just the, the system of education is, is really the, the bee in my bonnet. And Katie, do you have any Black friends? I'm having lunch today with my friend Jean, who um, I'm an only child and he is he has a sister um but we a long time ago just decided that we would be siblings we would be family um, <laughs> my my kids call him uncle gene um, so we are having a socially distanced lunch today in a park nice. um so he is he's you know he's family he is by far my closest black friend Awesome. Well, let's welcome Marcy to the show. I heard her ding in. Um, yeah. Hello, ladies. Welcome. Hi. So tough topic today, but, um, and, and I'm going to just hit you straight on with this. 
Marcy, when, when was the last time you had a meaningful conversation about race? Hi, Marcy. <laughs> Hi. Happy Friday. Good morning. Thank gosh. Give me a minute to finish my coffee. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I would say I've had a number of them recently. Um, yeah. I think one of the more interesting ones is I was speaking to someone recently about the use of the, the N-word uh, and the terminology, and I was hard-pressed, and I, it was interesting as I was thinking about it, I was hard-pressed to come up with a situation that I have ever been in in my life where that term was used in a derogatory manner. I've been around plenty of black friends who use it, but in a different context. And so I, that was the nature of the conversation I was having, and I was a little bit taken aback, and we had a very different upbringing. I was raised in Massachusetts, and the person that I was speaking to was raised in Texas, and mm -hmm. I think there's a different environment um, between the two, and maybe a different mindset, um, and you know, maybe some diverse, more diverse perspectives, but also more... <sighs> oh, I don't know how to say it, more willingness. I mean, I know I've heard people say that racism in the South is overt and racism in the North is not, um, but it's still there. And I think that there's truth to that. So that may be part of it as well. Yeah, that's a there's, tough conversation to have based on person's, um, their, that person's geographic bubble or their how they project is really where I'm trying to go with that. They think their world is how the entire world is just because that's how their world is. And they project those feelings onto you. It's really important and bravo to you for having such an open mind that you recognize. Yeah. Even in the North there's racism. It's just not as overt. Mm -hmm. No question. I, I find I'm originally, I may grew up North of Boston and I find Boston to be one of the most segregated cities I've ever been in. Yeah, if you're from Southie, don't you dare go to the North End and buy that. And that's just years. Italian and Irish, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Italian and Irish, yeah. Lots of different um, neighborhoods, you know, Roxbury, Brookline. I remember, I lived in Cohasset, thank you very much. Huh? That's like exactly <laughs> what you were talking about, Katie, with the um, suburban white soccer mom, you know. They were lacrosse moms, though. <laughs> anyway. well, it's interesting. I find what Katie was talking about is true here in Houston in a different way, um, as opposed to just the suburbs. In the communities in the city in Houston, there is quite a large proportion that put their kids in private schools. And by doing so, immediately cut off a huge experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the school that my older son is going to be entering into it's you know if you look at it online it's a b school katie and but if you look at the diversity statistics it's 75 percent non-white and i think that the perception is well that is not a good school because in part of the diversity and socioeconomic differences that exist in the school if you drill down, and this is terrible, but it gives, speaks directly to this idea of systemic racism. If you drill down and look at the scores of the students by race, the white kids do better in that school than they do with the all white school down the street. Well, I think, so it's you know, Marcy, I think a, yeah, I, and I think that's a really interesting idea and it, it sort of harkens back to something Katie said earlier, which is the idea of quotas too. You know, it's like, 
when you consider the idea of when you're looking at candidates for a job and people say, well, you know, you need to consider the black candidate or the, the non-white candidates and people say, well, they must be less qualified. And I don't know where, obviously it's because it's a racist idea, but where the idea came from that because they're not white, they must be less qualified. And, you know, that's, that's where that comes from, where it's like, because they're not white, they must be, you know, less socioeconomically um, advantaged. They must be not doing as well in school. And, you know, that those are obviously racist ideas. And you think that the kids will do less well in those schools. And those are the kinds of things that we have to come away from where when you say, oh, we're going to include a black person on this panel. And it's like, oh, well, they must be not as good a speaker. And they've only be, be, been given this chance because of their the color of their skin. And it's like, no, that person is also still qualified, smart and talented. And that, that I think is a huge problem in addition to everything else that we're dealing with is those, that automatic reaction by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me, Lindsay, to a comment you made earlier about um, race not being based in any genetic or scientific basis. Um, you want to unpack that a little bit? I think I shocked a lot of people on the webinar yesterday when I said that scientifically we are 99.9% the same. Yeah, and I, I had read that in a book recently. I, uh, I want to say it was Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's um, yes. anti-racist book, which um, I, that do, it actually does not surprise me at all. It was not a surprise to me to find that out, but I think people are surprised because they assume it's things like black people are better at basketball, black people can dance, you know, white people are this, but, and there is no genetic or scientific basis. They've done significant amount of testing and there is no difference between the races other than the amount of melanin that is in your skin. So it is entirely a social construct that, uh, as you have in your notes here, is designed to divide people into groups that we as white people have to, have decided are superior or inferior. And the reason for that is to enable us to, you know, in the past to, um, build our cities and work our crops and make us money um, and to keep black people down and other people of color down. And so, you know, we need to re uh, rework those, those past experiences. And obviously there's been f- over 400 years of that here in the U S and other countries are not from that either. That's all true and sad. Let me ask you ladies. So when um, Lindsay was talking about melanin, I was thinking about eye color and I know Marcy, you and I have seen that video, the woman who was a teacher in grade school and she did the eye color experiment on people treating one another differently based on their eye color. Katie, what color are your eyes? Brown? Hazel. Hazel. And then Marcy, yours are like teal blue. Um, (laughs) And what about you, Lindsay? I'm hazel too. And mine are green, sometimes blue. Um, what if we treated people differently because they had, you know, hazel eyes versus everybody else who had brown eyes? You know, that's what the experiment was about. Very poignant. If you want to comment on that, Marcy, I know you sent it to me. I'd already shared it, but I'm glad that it hit you uh, so, you know, um, powerfully as it did me. It, mm-hmm, it is. And it's the minute that there was 
a thought, an inkling. So these are children that had been getting along well all along and been very cohesive in a class. And the minute they were told that one group was inferior to the other, they started treating them differently. Learn. And exactly. It is learned behavior and the, you could immediately see the deflation of the students that were being treated differently and their demeanor changed. They seemed sad. They seemed to stop trying. Right. Um, and the, in the experiment, they did it in one direction and then the next day she flipped it and the same thing happened. So it's not something that's inherent to any, you know, group of people. It, uh, it's just human nature to respond to that sense of, dislike and that being told that you are inferior it in in 24 hours affected the way that these children were performing even their academic performance was yeah. affected yeah so they they engaged in self-limiting beliefs they were felt defeated they felt less than all because of the way someone else treated them now you know even women our age and older um, maybe some people go to the grave without embracing the fact that other people's opinions of you is really none of your business. That's a tough mantra to actually live by. And when you're that age, you're certainly not wise enough to live by any mantra, much less that one. So they felt very, um, you know, that, that the way these other kids treated them is how they were defined, you know, and you start to believe that you're, you're treated a certain way for so long, you start to believe that. And I also want to point out, um, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, because this is learned behavior, the day before this experiment started was MLK's assassination, sadly. Uh, that's what prompted her to do this. So, um, but that day, and the day before that, and the day before that, these kids thought they could rule the world and change the, you know, and they loved life and everything was great. I mean, they, they, they didn't think of each other as the other. And then even those who are ugly, it's their assignment to treat people with eyes who are of different colors, um, to treat them poorly or differently or less than. Even they felt, I detected in the, in the experiment, they felt bad about being mean, bad about being, mm -hmm. ugly, you know, so where is that in today's society? You know, I see blatant, overt racism, bigotry comments like, where is that? Where is that feeling that this is just not right? How can you, I don't know, Lindsay and I are both deep, deep feelers. So, I mean, I, I'm crushed by this stuff, but how can someone be a bigot and be racist and hurt other like how could someone put their knee on some man's neck and just watch him die and kill him not watch him die kill him i don't mm -hmm. understand how you, you you're a psychopath you know where is your feeling how can you be ugly to others is my point you know i, I, I don't i, don't I think yeah. i think we've been trained you know and this is where the systemic part comes in we've been trained and that's the difference between our, this experiment and, and and what racism has done to us and, and this country and, and really the world is we've been trained our whole lives that people who are a different color are inferior to white people. And so I think any of, if you have those feelings and some people do and some people don't, I mean, you see this in, in group situations, 
of any type where, you know, when someone starts to pick on someone else, you feel, even if you feel that twinge, if it's not you, you're relieved that it's not you that's getting picked on for a, for a moment. So you're willing to do things that you wouldn't maybe do on your own. But even if it is just you on your own, you've been so trained, I think, by society to think that people of a different color have these certain traits that you've always been told your whole life that they have. And so you believe that those things are true. And so you believe that they're less than you and you believe that they, their lives don't matter as much or their feelings don't matter as much. And so I think that's where it's easy for a lot of people to feel that those things are, are not important to, to delve into or to re realize. And it's unfortunate, but I, I think that's the case. And that's why it's so essential now to say we are all the same we need to make sure that we don't do those things and we need to make room to ensure that everybody is getting equal opportunities and equal pay and equal everything. Mm -hmm. I think that's, we have to realize how threatening that is to yeah. the people who have benefited from the system for so long um, yes. that we are basically saying by making, by giving everyone equal opportunity, yeah, you're, we're taking your thumb off the scale and your sons, you know, for, to, to make things better for my daughters, your sons may have less opportunity. And I think it's easy for people to agree to things like equity in the abstract. And yeah. where we fail is what do people do when they're in a voting booth all alone? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do people do when they write a check and nobody sees which candidate it's going to. Yeah. Um, it's easy for all of us to put something on Facebook, um, but when it when the quest for equity will go against our own self-interests, that's gonna be the real test of character. And, and I agree with that, which is why I try to, when I, I try to say, okay, so here's the self-interest part. I believe that diversity, true diversity actually does benefit everybody because statistics have shown, studies have shown that when we have true diversity in a room, there is, businesses do better. They make mm -hmm. more money. They, There's more creativity. There is, and right. There is more opportunity for everyone, even white men. So I think, you know, I, I know they- That's I, a powerful white, part. Say that again. <laughs> there is more opportunity even for white men. So I think white men have, the, the only thing that there is not more opportunity for white men to do is to just touch whoever they want to, which they need to be doing that. That's not <laughs> I just, you know, say whatever they want. And to, so if, if what white men want to do is to be insulting and racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic, then knock it off. And honestly, that's true of anybody. If what, you know, that, that's not exclusive to white men. White women are doing a lot of, of damage. The same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of damage. So um, I'm sorry to laugh. I didn't expect that to come out, but that's true. You're, <laughs> you're spot on. Absolutely. Don't effing touch me unless yeah. you're invited, right? Yeah, right. Consent My husband is very just important. saw me say that. He's like, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's awesome. Lindsay, you and I... Um, those books are hard, right? They're hard to read. And even something I found interesting in the How, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist book was he indicated that there are many in the Black community 
who have come to believe they're less than as well. And Marcy, your comments on the study show why. I mean, they start to believe what they're told. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then they started to treat other um, Black people differently based on the shades of of skin, right? So, oh, no question. Yeah, I had never heard and that, of that. And, and, oh, yes. So there's based on shades of skin, based on where they're from, right? So there's a distinct difference between um, immigrant African immigrants and American yeah. blacks, which mm -hmm. is also incredibly. And if you research, so there, I in college read this study. I went studied with a woman by the name of Professor Mary Waters. And she had done a lot of interesting research on this topic. And one of the things that we read, and I can't remember the name of her book, um, was about the black immigrant populations coming in from Africa into the Northeast, I think it was New York, and how within a generation, so these are people that came here, they were immigrants. For, I always talk about immigration in terms of you know, not refugees, but people come here voluntarily, which means they at least have some level of ambition and drive and so they come to this country and they have a very different experience here and so the children that are then born in america are raised in the american society where they are subjected to exactly what we're talking about which is the sense that you know you are inferior you need to speak differently to fit into the african-american culture and adopt ebonics you need to um act a certain way in order to fit into the African-American culture versus the African culture. And under that transition, they found that regardless of the fact that the parents who had come here with a different level of education and a different set of drive, the children subjected to the American systemic racism very quickly adopted a lot of the mentality and behaviors of what you see here because of racism yes so it's it's unfortunate and it, it's it reminds me of when i was in high school i had an english teacher who said to me she was a, the honors english teacher and she looked at me one day and she said your father must value your intelligence and at the time i'm like well, yeah like i don't know what you're talking about but it came down to like the, Italy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, high school. Um, it, it came down to her saying, you know, a lot of, and this is, we hear this, you know, you tell little girls that they're pretty, you tell little boys that they're brave, you, you know, and just mm -hmm. hearing wow. the, what she said, which was really powerful was, yes. yes, like his expectation, you know, he doesn't, yes, he tells me I'm beautiful, but that's not his emphasis. He wants to and she really believed in her mind, and I think there's probably some validity to it, that it mattered less what my mother thought and mattered more what my father thought about it yes. and That's what his perspective was. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I grew up caring more, listening to more, uh, following his lead more, my father than my mother. Um, thank God. But... Um, I'm glad I did that because I entered a world that is owned and operated and run by white men. And if you're going to change that world, you need to understand it. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like being on debate team and knowing the other team's argument. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to understand it to change it. So what an interesting, that's so wonderful that, that she said that and didn't label you um, based on those things women often get, la- or girls often get labeled um, for, like weight or grades. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm ever asked about either <laughs> one of those or anything, but I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes at four o'clock every day at school, she would yes. say, how's your weight? How's your grades? How are yes. your grades? Yes. Oh, whatever. <laughs> One day we'll have a story, a, a podcast, and it'll be Susan's therapy session. <laughs> we can have a guest therapist on for each of us. <laughs> oh, my God. oh no. Yeah. Well, let's talk about racial identity. We've talked about race and how it's made up propagandist, man-made just to, you know, oppress others, you know, label groups and um, you know, pretend one is superior over the other, but racial identity is real. And that's what Marcy was just talking about when she, um, mentioned the, the, um, labeling of, you know, various people with various shades of skin, racial identity is externally imposed with the thoughts of, um, you know, how do others perceive me? Right. And, and that's what most people worry about all of their, you know, lives, but racial identity is also internally constructed. And I think that we self-actualize and we care more about this as we get wiser and and not everyone does that, you know, but hopefully the women on this call have, how do I identify myself? Um, So it's more important what you think of yourself than what others think of you. Um, But this is a good thing to think about in the way of what if you're a white woman who's actually Puerto Rican, you know, maybe, you know, where do you fall in that? How do you identify? It should be up to you, right? Um, So that's sort of, that is real. Racial identity is real. And understanding how our identities and experiences have shaped by race, that's that's important that we look at that. Um, But know that biologically, scientifically, as Lindsay said a couple times, it's not, it's fake, it's made up, it's not real. Um, what well, do you think about identity? I'll say, I mean, yes, okay, it is internally constructed, but the way others perceive you is important because as you make the point, we are awarded certain privileges True. or disadvantages because of how others perceive us. So you may, I have, a, my, my best friend is half Mexican, but she is white passing and she recognizes that a hundred percent. So she would absolutely say that she benefits from being white and so it would be it would be very difficult for somebody to say you know i i'm i'm part of the the bipoc group and and but i and i'm not getting the advantages of of being a white person um i think it's very important especially for white people to understand how they benefit from white supremacy even if they have uh, other, even if they're, they're mixed race. So, um, I think for those of us who are, are white, are white or white passing, it's really, really important to understand how white supremacy benefits us and impacts other people of color. That is, that is a very good point. And you've, you've opened my eyes and my ears and my mind as we always do with one another on this show. Um, let's talk about, you know, you know, we know what racism is. In one quick sentence, racism, you know, is, you can quickly just surmise that it's unfair treatment of an other for no real reason. But 
there are different types of racism. So if you if you'd like to, and I would, I'm just telling you now, I'd like to dive into those types of racism because I think people think of racism at the individual level, like how Uncle Joe treats all black people, right? Um, but it's also at an institutional level and structural level. And, and that's what my life's journey has been about is changing that. So let's talk about the different types of racism. What types of racism are you aware of, Katie? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all the things uh, no I mean I just think you see it everywhere from the you know that's how our parents grew up racism to you know inequities in the education system and the criminal justice system and the housing market I mean it's yeah ubiquitous and, and pervasive and, and it doesn't seem like there's much of American life, it, it doesn't touch. Um, exactly. I, I won't purport to be a sociologist, but I just think it's, instead of saying, where is it? I think it's, you know, where is it not? Wow, that's powerful. That's true. Um, you know, I asked the first question, which I thought would be the toughest, but you knocked it out of the park because you've had such a unique upbringing with having gone to the school that you went to. But if you ask most white people, when did they first think of their race? they'll say never because we are the benchmark, right? We're the where it starts and where it ends in our minds. And so why would we ever have to think about race? I mean, we're, we're the standard by which all other uh, people are measured in our minds. It's all bunk, it's all not true, but that's sort of what Barbara D'Angelo, what's her first name? Is it D Barbara D'Angelo from White Fragility? She wrote White, Dr. Barbara. Uh, Robin, Robin Robin, thank you, Robin D'Angelo. She talks about, you know, I never thought about race because I'm a white woman. I never had to, right? So I was thinking the other day, I'm like, you know, I've never thought about race either. Um, and I never, because I never had to. Uh, it's just like never having to think about, you know, struggling where my next meal would come from because I never had to, right? Um, it's so sad, but, but I ask in my work, I ask the owls, when did you ever think of your race? What did your parents think of race? Was it ever talked about in your household? And you should see it's like deer in headlights, you know? Um, so I ask you, Marcy, when did you become aware of your race? That's or an racial, interesting question. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know. Uh, probably somewhere around middle school, high school. And I think it, it, it's interesting. I was very enamored. I mean, it was the eighties and hip hop and rap was in vogue and <laughs> I, right. I, I it, it was, and I became very impassioned. I, I always had this, this sense of, you know, I'm blonde hair, blue eyed. I'm like everything that people despise about the white person. And <laughs> I, so I, I know, and it's horrible, but that's kind of the way that I, I looked at it. My, my family, my mother's side of the family was Italian and they were all dark and exotic looking. And I always felt, Oh, like, that's what I want. I want more of that. Right. I want more spice because inside I'm spicy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so that was the way my approach to it. So I spent a lot of time with black friends in call in, in high school and college. I was a sociology major, but I specifically studied race relations. I 
had a Cuban Colombian boyfriend. I mean, I was just, that's what I gravitated towards. And so for me, it was interesting. It was, yes, there was a, there's a racial identity of being white that I acknowledge and see wow. all of the advantages of, but I also put myself in positions where I was often the only white person in the room. And it's a different feeling. And I think that's a feeling that a lot of white people have never felt before. That is, that's amazing. I've, I've, that is not the answer I expected, but wow. That Look, I love my posse. Y'all are awesome. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, so I'm the spicy Italian to whom you refer. Thank you for thinking I'm the, 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 the gold star. Um, that is awesome. Uh, you know, interesting, very interesting that you were curious about the other before it was something you should do or told was you were told to do or you know you you sort of immersed yourself in something different that's courageous awesome wow uh, ladies i am go i'm going to have to duck off i have a uh, zoom at 11 for which i need makeup oh god <laughs> what is makeup i know I, I will have i will have my pajama pants on don't worry but, you go girl Thank you, Kate. Right. You're awesome. Um, oh. Hey, um, I'm glad that, you know, we're all trying to be agents of positive change and all the very best to all of you. Thank you, baby. Thank you. Bye, Katie. All right. Well, it is almost time for us to wrap up. We have about five minutes left. I just want to talk about the importance of our not forgetting or neglecting and not even not forgetting or neglecting, but actively working to change, eradicate, stop institutional racism and structural racism you know in all the organizations that you ladies and i work with it's there it's there oh my god it's there in a big way so they wouldn't recognize that it's there managing partners executive committees you know i'm working with a firm right now that shall remain unnamed um and they're making the, they're doing the hard work so give them credit you know they'll still remain unnamed but they're there are no no black people there not one like 50 lawyers and not mm -hmm. one is black i'm like what oh my god um and there's a million dollar company i'm working with and there's not one woman on the senior team they're all white men and i'm like what so you know thank god that they're you know aware and asking for help and knowing they need to change because there are too many companies out there that and organizations that think, oh, this is how we've always done it and it's worked just fine, go away. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of element to combat racism do you bring to every client conversation? Even if it's just one or two comments or a question, I mean, do you always bring that in? I know we all do leadership training, all of us. We do leadership talks, we exhibit leadership skills. But without DEI involved or in, ingrained in our leadership talks and training and, and, you know, examples of skills, I don't think that's true leadership. So do you, yeah, do you bring that into everything you do? It's, that's an interesting question. So I would say at my former company, we intentionally avoided it and not out of any... Yeah. Uh, malicious intent, but simply because, you know, it didn't show up in the research that we were doing as resonating and being that important to clients. And so it therefore didn't enter into our conversations at a high level because at the time it was a lot more um, corporate speak than it was action. So I'd like to think that's changed. I 
don't know that it has. I'd like to see it changing <laughs> um, moving forward. I'd say the biggest way that comes into my conversations these days is with the concept of hiring for cultural fit. You know, I do work with leaders and so we inevitably have conversations about culture and we talk about the ways that leaders influence culture and then how culture influences people's behaviors. And hiring for cultural fit is by its very nature inherent with some level of bias. Yeah, fun. And yeah. so understanding what that means to a, a, an organization and saying you, you can't keep hiring the same. Cultural fit is exactly the opposite of what you need if you want to truly diversify your talent pool. Exactly. And who defines the culture? I don't know. We white people seem to wake up and think we defined everything. Right. But yeah, that's very powerful work, Marcy. That's, and I get, get it. I mean, I don't, I'm not um, giving it a gold star at all, but I get the choice not to go there for a lot of companies. It's scary, but I'm saying go there, do it, be uncomfortable, too bad. So, if, so if you're uncomfortable, you're going to come out on the other side of this better. Um, it's, it'll be a, like Mark, uh, like Lindsay said earlier, you'll impact the bottom line, uh, by having more diversity on your team and different ideas. They're more progressive. They're more creative. They're more innovative. So Lindsay, what about you and your work as we close out on this last minute in the show? Yeah. It's funny uh, that you talk about being uncomfortable because um, when I gave my first speech as incoming executive director a couple of years ago, that's exactly what I said to our lawyer. I said, you know, if we want to be a leader in the legal industry, we're going to have conversations around gender, around race, and basically prepared, not basically, I said, prepare to be uncomfortable and sort of too bad because we have an exceptionally white male group. Um, we've done a little bit better on gender. We're still exceptionally white. Um, so they were sort of like, oh God, <laughs> what have we done? Um, this is so, you got all the votes, right? <laughs> yes, yes, fortunately. So, you know, over the last few months, I, I've been sending out a regular Corona briefing and in there I have put in a lot of um, a lot of information around race and, and what law firms are doing and what other lawyers, black lawyers have been saying, because I also believe very heavily in rather than just me or white people talking about race, I want to amplify black voices because obviously they've been speaking in this space for a while. So let them say what they want to say. I don't need to say it. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, and then I realized too, you know, I, I get asked very often for recommendations in the legal industry and I often recommend the same people and they're generally white. So I said to some friends of mine, I'd, I'd really rather recommend some black people and other people of color. And so I spoke to another black friend of mine and I said, I, I want to make this request and I, I want to do it in a sensitive way. She and I had a long conversation about it. So I'm going to be putting together a list of companies and consultants of color that I can then recommend out when I get those recommendations. And because also we as an organization are looking at, you know, who do we use as suppliers and speakers right. so that we can diversify that. Get your money. You show me the receipts, right? So exactly, exactly. And not just that, but also in terms of our membership. And I, right. this is something I started a couple of years ago too. I got a little tired of asking our lawyers to bring more diverse people. So I started to look at how can we recruit directly firms of color that are, are color black owned 
minority owned women owned firms. So that's something we've been working on too. We're not, to be clear, we haven't had a lot of success there yet, but it is something that I've really worked on to try and, and get to that point. I'm telling you, you and Joel Stern, you're going to change the world. So- <laughs> yes. Yeah, so shout out to NamWolf because they're an awesome organization. That's the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. Um, and they're a great resource for people that are looking for law firms that are uh, especially here in the U.S. that are run by minorities and women. Girl, you're the shiz. I love you. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a great show. It was a tough topic. Um, I think that we need to start to have these or continue. You've been having these courageous conversations and you clearly dare to lead. So go Miss Brene Brown. You, um, Thank you so much for all of this. All right. We'll see you next week, right? Yes. All right. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks for showing up. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye.